Lord, what more can we say? What more can we declare than what has already been declared? There is none like you. From the dawn of time you reign to the end of days, you're the God who saves. Lord, you are all these things and so much more. God, I pray right now we would be stilled in your presence, that whatever that anxiety is that we're bringing here from this week, we would bring that to light with who you are and see how powerful and majestic and strong and glorious you are over whatever it is we're facing right now. There is nothing too great for you. The odds are always in your favor. And so I pray for freedom in this place right now. I pray you would guard my mouth against error, Father, and say what you want to say. Holy Spirit, go forth in power. Go forth in anointing. Go forth, Holy Spirit, and do the work that you desire to do in my life and the life of each person here today. That each of us would leave here saying, I have just encountered the King of Kings. I have encountered Jesus Christ, and I cannot be the same. May it be so, Lord. Give us ears to hear and joy in humbling ourselves under your word right now to say, speak to me, Lord. Change me. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, today, loved ones, as we kick off 2019. I was so blessed as I started going through this message this week. I I don't know if there's a greater message we could kick off the year with. One that really speaks to the heart of God for his church and for the posture that we are to have before him. Let's open up to our Bible or open up our Bibles to John chapter 3 verses 22 to 30. John chapter 3 verses 22 to 30. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, our ushers are coming forward right now. Just stick your hand up and we want to put one in front of you and you will find today's passage on page 518 of those Bibles, okay? Flip to page 518 and you will find it. And so as we start this message off, uh, we've, st- we've been out of g- the gospel of John for a couple weeks now, going verse by verse, line by line, but we've paused for a couple weeks over Christmas break, and we've got a new year, and so let's just get refreshed, a little quick recap and summary of what has brought us to this point through the first three chapters of going through John. You'll see it on the screen as a summary for you. This is what's happened so far. In John chapter 1, It introduces us to Jesus and John the Baptist. It introduces us to Jesus and John the Baptist. It it goes over in a beautiful prologue of 18 verses to start the book off. Who is Jesus Christ? Describing him as the Son of God. Describing him as God himself, the eternal one who incarnated himself, that is, became a man who became flesh and dwelt among us. It described him as he is the light of the world. He is the savior and only savior of the world. And it also introduced us to the ministry of John the Baptist. Who's John the Baptist? This was a guy who ate bugs and clothed himself himself in camel's fur. But more importantly than that, he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who was sent to prepare the people of Israel to meet the Messiah to declare him. He was preaching Jesus Christ. He was preaching and baptizing repentance in preparation for the Messiah. 
And then chapter 2 focused on Jesus' public ministry as it started to begin. John the Baptist started to go to the background. Jesus starts to come to the forefront. And the first sign Jesus performs in John chapter 2 was turning water into wine. And remember, he does these eight signs that we will look at in this book to declare and authenticate who he is as the Son of God. And then he goes on to cleanse the temple, the Old Testament temple of, of their worship, their idolatry worship and he makes it very clear God wants his worship in reverence because he's holy he wants his worship in recognition that he has all authority he doesn't want flippancy he doesn't want consumerism he wants reverence in our worship before him then we hit chapter 3 in the verse first 15 verses Jesus is speaking with the leading scholar in all of Israel Nicodemus about who can enter the kingdom of God. And he makes it so clear. You must be born again. You cannot earn the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, the leading scholar in the Old Testament, not, none of your knowledge is going to get you into heaven. You must be born of God, regenerated, made new by the Holy Spirit as an act of God. And then he carries on in verses 16 to 21, our Christmas text, where John then outlines God's plan for salvation in how a person must be saved. And he gives the beautiful heart of the gospel itself in verse 16 where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave, you cannot earn, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The heart of the gospel, God's plan for salvation, Jesus Christ himself. And now, in this last section, that we will take this week and next week on, verses 22 to 36. It's the final testimony of John the Baptist. You know, I, I, this is kind of bittersweet preparing this sermon because it's the last time we're going to hang with the Baptist in this gospel. I have really enjoyed spending time with John the Baptist over the last four months. I'm going to miss him, but we're going to hear his final testimony where he exalts Jesus Christ one final time in this gospel. And his ministry then fades away, and Jesus' ministry comes to the full forefront. Just think about this. What a way to go out. You want to go out this way? I want to go out this way. Exalting Jesus Christ, declaring the final word. He must increase and I must decrease. You want to go out that way? I want to go out that way. That is the definitive mark of finishing well in this life. He must increase, I must decrease. This is, as Isaiah 43, 7 says, the very purpose for which we were created to proclaim him. It brings the question, though. Here's John the Baptist exalting Christ. Who are you and I exalting in our lives right now? This question is going to set the tone for the rest of the message. Who are you exalting in your life? Who is your testimony really about? Is it more about you? and your accomplishments, and your name being great, or is it more about him? Who's your testimony? You say, well, let's get some clarity. What does it mean to exalt? You'll see it. This is Google Dictionary right here. It means to exalt means to hold someone or something in very high regard to think or speak highly of. Who are you speaking highly of? Who is your testimony about? If people, like, think of it this way. If people were to look at your life, if people were to look at mine, whom would they say it's pointed towards? You or Jesus Christ? 
If they were to look at your life, your kids, parents, your kids, who would they say your testimony's pointing to? You and getting your way or Jesus Christ? Are we opening up God's word with our children? Are we declaring the excellencies of him who saved us and called us to this amazing grace to them? Or are we declaring ourselves? How about this? With your spouse, who are you declaring with your spouse? I want my way. I want to do my time, my things, my will. Who are you declaring? Who's your testimony about? How about this? With our coworkers, who would they say your testimony points to? Your neighbors, your friends. How about this? Your, your friends on social media. Who would they say those, point, those posts you make point towards? Who's the testimony about? Who's being exalted? See, the problem is this, loved ones. You just even look at that. I was just chiseled even right now. The problem is we love to exalt ourselves over Christ. Individually, and now we see collectively more and more entire churches and ministries exalting themselves over Christ. Instead of living lives commending, that is praising Christ, we so often live lives in competition with him. We don't spend our lives commending Christ. We spend our lives in competition with Christ. Who's going to get the glory today? Who's going to get the glory in this argument? Who's going to get the glory in what I want on my agenda? Who's going to get the glory in my parenting? Who's going to get the glory in my marriage? Who's going to get the glory on Facebook? Who is going to get the glory with my finances? We spend our lives not commending but in competition And instead of living with humility before him, exalting Jesus Christ above ourselves, we so often live in the pride that God opposes. And loved ones, this is dangerous. Isaiah 42, 8 says, he will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory. And so we don't see it. We don't see his presence. We don't see his power in our lives. And we wonder why. That's why. Yet, Yet, through the final testimony of John the Baptist, we see two critical postures we must embrace if Jesus Christ is to be exalted in our lives. Loved ones, these are non-negotiable. Absolutely, 100% non-negotiable postures we must live with by the power of the Holy Spirit if Jesus Christ is to be exalted. You guys ready? Here we go. John the Baptist, verses 22 to 30. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word in this place. John the Baptist exalts Christ. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And all God's people said, amen. Let's have a seat. Let's have a seat. 
Well, Jesus Christ is exalted in my life when I am not living in competition with him. Jesus Christ is exalted in my life when I am not living in competition with him. The key question that underlines this section is this. Am I competing with Christ or commending him? Am I competing with Christ or commending him? Look at verses 22 to 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. See verse 22, it says, after finishing speaking with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, that's the after this, Jesus and his disciples then head out into the Judean countryside. They leave the city of Jerusalem and go to the rural areas near the Jordan River, and they begin baptizing the people coming to him. Now, now, important note here. John chapter 4 verse 2, as we'll see in a couple weeks, it, it says Jesus wasn't the one baptizing the people. He allocated that to his disciples. He's observing it. He's overseeing it. Okay, so let's not think scripture's contradicting itself when we get to that. He's overseeing that. Now, this thing baptizing, what is that? It means to, Greek word baptizo, means to dip or submerge. The symbol of that, not what you're going to see next week, that's believer's baptism after someone's made their profession of faith in Jesus Christ and, and is declaring their new creation. This was the baptism of inner repentance and symbolized a cleansing from sin in a desire for the Messiah's coming. A preparation, a baptism of preparation. And then verse 23, John and his disciples, notice that, they're also baptizing. We've got two baptism areas going on here, and they're baptizing people a short distance, and we find out north, just a short distance north from that where Jesus was, and they're at Anon near Salim, where lots of water is. Why do you need lots of water? Because baptism means you get submerged. So you need lots of water to do that. Now, let's get some context here. You'll see a map there. So the bottom star is where, so you see that star and then the arrow, that's Jerusalem. And then Jesus moves out and they believe he's by, they don't know the exact location, but they believe he's by the fjords at Jericho. Okay, just past Jericho on the Jordan River. And then the top star, if you just go north of that along the Jordan, that's where John is. That's where they believe Anon was, near Salim. All right, and so you can see they're just a short, it looks like a long distance, loved ones. It's just a short distance between the two. And they have to have been close. And they say the reason John's baptizing with his disciples here, verse 24, is because he wasn't yet put in prison. Now, wait a second, what's that all about? Well, John would later on be put in prison. We don't see it here in this gospel, but in the synoptics of Matthew and Mark, we see John was put in prison by King Herod Antipas for rebuking him over marrying his brother Philip's wife named Herodias. Herod married his niece. He told Herodias, you need to leave my brother and come marry me. And so John the Baptist goes before the king. He couldn't stand the thought of the people of God, the nation of God, being ruled by a king who's practicing such open incest. And so he goes before the king, and you can read all about it in Matthew 14, 1 to 12. He goes before the king and rebukes him and ultimately ends up with his head on a platter. there's a problem here that's coming. In verses 25 to 26, let's read. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. See the problem, loved ones? John the Baptist's disciples get into some discussion. Now, the Greek word there for discussion, it's not like, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's talk about a few things. This is an argument. This is an argument that's going on, a debate that's happening with a Jewish man over purification practices. Now, the term purification there, Jews highly valued external purification practices because they symbolize purity before God. Like you remember from John chapter 2, verse 6, where Jesus is turning the water into wine. Those cisterns he used to fill with wine, those were the cisterns that they used to wash the utensils before they ate. Okay? And then there were different methods of purification. Washing the body. All of these were external. But this man comes and begins to question John's disciples about what their baptism symbolized because they're proclaiming a symbol of internal purification. What's that all about? From sin that was different from the Jewish custom. Now, we don't know what was said in this argument. We're not going to take beyond the bounds of Scripture. But something triggered John's disciples. There's an attitude adjustment that happens here. Something triggers it because after the argument, they come to John and notice this. Did you notice their tone? They start complaining. They start complaining that all the people are now going to Jesus for baptism and not them anymore. Did you see that in verse 26? Rabbi, he who's with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now you may say, well, wait a second, isn't that good? Don't you want people to get to Jesus? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But put yourself, live in the text, loved ones, put yourself in these disciples' shoes. John's been the hot ticket so far. John's been the popular preacher that people from all over Israel have been coming to hear preach and be baptized by up to this point. He's been the guy. And if you're a disciple, think about what this means for you. You've given your time. You've given your effort. You've given your sacrifice to honor God in the ministry he's given you. Yet now Jesus is beginning to steal your thunder. He's becoming more popular than you. I mean, can you just hear them saying, who does that guy think he seriously is setting up shop just down the river from us? They're all going to him now. Who's that? What, not enough water? You gotta be so close? This guy who John was bearing witness to is now taking your glory, John. He's taking your people. Can you hear the resentment? Can you hear the frustration in the voice and the competition in their voices? The exa- Notice this. You say, what's a clue for that? Here it is. The exaggerated statements that we so often make when we want to promote ourselves and don't get our own way. Notice that in verse, <laughs> in verse 26 where they say, uh, he who is with you across the Jordan, whom you bore with, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Is that true? True or false, are all going to Jesus. Yo, just look back at verse 23. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful and people were, say that with me, coming. Uh, Is all going to Jesus? Oh, 
Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't we do the same thing? God, I never see you answer this prayer. God, you always seem to answer other prayers for people. I never see you at work. Don't we say this in our marriages? You always do fill in the blank. You sure that's true? You sure? You sure about that? You never fill in the blank. Really? Really? You sure? Never? That's a big word. Why? Because we want our way. We're competing. Instead of commending Jesus Christ as they should have been, the Messiah had come. And they knew because John had told him to them. He'd said, this is the one. Instead of commending Jesus Christ as they should have, they're competing with him. And look at the result. The result is they could not celebrate the work of Christ in the life of another. They could not celebrate the work of Christ in the life of another because they wanted to be exalted. Welcome to the human heart. And the same is true for us today. So question, question, loved one. Are you competing with Christ or commending him? Not just paying lip service when God works in another's life, but genuinely praising him from the heart. Think about this as a church ministry, right? Are we celebrating God's work in other churches? As we see God move and people saved and people, are we celebrating that or do we get hostile towards that? You know, as I was praying through this this week, the thought came, the thought came, you know, if God decided to bring a revival to Ottawa, wouldn't that be awesome? Yes or no? Thumbs up? Yes? Hopefully everyone's thumbs up. Right? Right? If he decided to bring a revival to Ottawa, awesome. But here's the thing. What if he chose to use another church? would you still commend him? Or say, why not us? I pray we would commend him. Because it's not about us, loved ones. How about this? In our service to God, in the church, God brings that person into a service role that you would like. Well, why didn't I get chosen? Why wasn't I picked for that? I got this gift, I put this in, why wasn't I picked? Competing, 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 instead of commending, wow, God, you're at work in that person's life, and I praise you. What about this? In our health, when that person receives healing from the sickness, and you haven't, and maybe it's been years, and you're still praying and struggling, and you're like, why is this person healed? What about me? Are we competing with Christ at that point? Why won't you do this? I want this. I want this. What about this? Let's drill down. Let's drill down a little more into the heart this morning. Just open your heart right now, loved ones. What about marriage? When that other couple's marriage is growing in the Lord and yours is struggling. Say, why do they have it so good? Why are you answering their hand? Look at us. We're struggling. There's tension. There's fighting. There's conflict. Don't you see? What about this with children? When the Lord grants children to that couple and you're still waiting. Can you commend the Lord in that moment? At that announcement? Or will we compete with him? It's hard. About this, singles. 
when that person gets married and after the ceremony you go home and you're still single? Can you commend God for his work in the life of those people? Can you praise him? Or will you compete with him? You say, well, how do I know? What's a clue? What's a clue that I'm competing against Christ and I'm putting myself in pride against him? Here it is. You'll see it on the screen. Quite simply, a competing person is a complaining person. A competing person is a complaining person. See it right here in the disciples of John. And it's no wonder you're complaining. It's no wonder we complain. Because our life is one big, joyless competition with God as you try to get what you want and exalt yourself, even if God has a different plan for you to show his glory through you. Of course you're complaining, because it's a competition for you, and you're not winning in your eyes. See, loved ones, this is Satan's major attack against God's people. Again and again and again. This is Satan's major attack. Getting you to compete with Christ, being jealous of his work in the lives of others, and not commend or exalt him. Why? Why is this his major strategy? Because Jesus Christ is exalted in my life when I am not living in competition with him. So of course Satan's going to try to get you living against him. Satan will work so hard because Christ is exalted when you're not living in competition, but he is exalted when you are living in contentment in him. Not competition against, but contentment in. And one who can genuinely commend Christ is one who is genuinely content in Christ. Saying, Lord, yes, that's my heart. I would love that. But you know what? I praise you for your work there, and I praise you for your work in my life right now. And as we live with the posture of commending the work of God in our lives and the lives of others, it leads us to living with increasing humility before him. Posture number two. If Jesus Christ is exalted in my life, he is when I am living with increasing humility before him. And the key question that underlines this section is this. Is Jesus becoming greater and am I becoming less? Is Jesus becoming greater and am I becoming less? Now notice the word increasing there in that title. There's nothing random that we do here, including the sermon slides. Increasing, because you never ever reach your humility ceiling. Great, I'm humble enough. Right then you've lost it. All right? All right, you never reach. It's increasing humility. Look at verses 27 to 30. John responds, look at this, this is beautiful. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must Increase. Look at the imperative right there. It's not, maybe he'll increase. He must increase. 
but I must decrease. See, after hearing the complaint of his disciples, John the Baptist answers them by pointing them not to himself. Who did he point to? Everyone, who did he point to? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the only one worth being pointed to. Now, right here, notice this. Notice, that is not a small thing. Because right here, John had the opportunity, right in front of him, to validate himself and his authority. He had it right here. To try to hold on to his little castle of glory if he was trying to build that for himself. To validate himself in light of this guy who's threatening him. He had the opportunity right here to say how good he was, to say how popular he was, to stoke his own ego. But look what he does. Think about it. If there's anyone who could have done this, it was John. Think about it. If anyone could stoke his own fire, it was John. He had the power. He had the passion. People were coming from all over to hear him. He had the persona. He had the crowds, the people. He had the performance. And he had the platform to declare himself. To try to hold on to his pride in the eyes of people. The glory Everything this world says, you deserve the glory for. You've got the people. You've got the platform. Yes, you, 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 you. This is what John had right now. And he had the opportunity to validate. But look, instead, even, even, even as his ministry is waning and he knows his time is short, Jesus is coming to the center. John's going to that. Look what he does. He uses the opportunity not to exalt himself, but to humble himself and exalt himself. Jesus Christ by pointing others to him. How did he do this? Let's dive in. He shows three characteristics right here of what living with Christ exalting humility looks like. Write these down, loved ones. We need these in our hearts so much every day, every moment. Write these down. Three characteristics of what living with Christ-exalting humility looks like. Humility, number one, recognizes and responds to the truth that Jesus is sovereign and all I have is from him. The recognition and response to the truth that Jesus is sovereign and all I have is from him. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The word receive there, the Greek means to this, take hold or obtain or claim something. You and I cannot take hold of anything unless it is given to us by God. Out of his sovereign hand. We cannot get anything from ourselves. Just as Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from him we can have nothing. He said, not even one thing. John realized, and we must, that anything he had, anything he would receive, including, not just tangible goods, including ministry opportunities, given to him was from the sovereign hand of God and was a gift of God's grace towards him. Including the ministry opportunities. Look around you, church. This room's almost filled. Is this not a gift of God's grace? God help us if we think it's us. God help us if we think we've arrived and we got this church thing down. It's not us. He must increase, loved ones. He has to. 
If this goes anywhere good in 2019, he must increase and we must decrease, loved ones. Our egos need to be checked. The glory we want for ourselves needs to get tossed. He must increase. The only reason this church exists is by the grace of God. He started it and he will finish it. You see, the recognition of this, here's the beauty of the humility posture this is. Because John the Baptist recognized, as we must recognize today, that he was a steward of every gift from God and he didn't own anything. You and I don't own anything, by the way. Everything we have is received from the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ in his grace to us. We are not to be called owners. We are to be stewards. We are not owners, loved ones. We are stewards. Maybe we'll write a book about that one day. We're just not owners. We're stewards. Why do you say this? Why is this so important to recognize? Because owners think they're entitled to the privileges from the very things that God has given them. You and I are not. We are stewards. We've been entrusted with a mission. We've been entrusted with a gospel. We've been entrusted with the opportunities and harvest kids and welcome. And we've been entrusted with the jobs we have. We've been entrusted with the marriage. We don't own it. It's his. He's first. Each one is a gift of grace. We didn't earn this. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. You'll see it on the screen. Paul emphasizes this again. He says, why do you have that? You, why do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? What do you have that you think you did not receive? Try it. Put it before the Lord. What do you think you have that you didn't get from him? So why do we boast like it's ours? Why do we boast like we gotta, we gotta take entitlement privileges? I deserve this. I deserve, really, really, you sure about that? You've received everything as a gift of grace. How different would ministries look if this was the posture of our heart? How much complaining would be flatlined because this is realized? How much I want it my way, complaining, grumbling, Taken out because this is realized. So question, are you humbling yourself in recognition that all you have is from Christ? This church, are we humbling ourselves or are we complaining about it? This is a gift of God's grace. We get to come together. What about the service opportunities in the church? Do we recognize them as a gift of God's grace so we can come in and set up chairs and shepherd kids and that room over there is going to be filled with an army of 30 plus Harvest Kids volunteers after the service and appreciation and training. Like, loved ones, hey, are we taking this as a gift of grace or are we showing entitlement for this like somehow I deserve privileges from it and get it my way? Really? Check our hearts, loved ones. Check our hearts. It's a gift of grace as with every child given to us. How about our job? Do we look at it as we've received it from God or I've earned this? No, you haven't. Sorry to burst the bubble, you haven't. 
my marriage, how often do we take our spouse for granted because we don't see them as a gift? Parents, how often do we not look at our children as gifts, but rather a bother to our routine? An interruption. Schooling, students, do you see your schooling as a gift? Our finances, every dollar, is it a gift? Do you see it as a gift or that you own it? It's not yours. It's not mine. It's crucial. Three characteristics of living with Christ-exalting humility. Humility recognizes and responds. doesn't just know it, but responds to it. That Jesus is sovereign, all I have is from him. Number two, Jesus is the Savior. My purpose is to make him known. Jesus is the Savior. My purpose is to make him known. Look at verses 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, John goes on to say, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Love this. (laughs) Love this. The word Christ there, the word Christ in verse 28 means this, the anointed one or the Messiah. That's the Greek, the anointed one or the Messiah. John states here, because of that, he's not the main attraction here. Why are you complaining? I'm not meant to be the main attraction. He's not the Messiah. He was sent by God to be his messenger in preparing God's bride. Who's the bride? God's people. Who's the bride now? Look around you, God's church is the bride now, to meet the bridegroom. John was sent to prepare the bride to meet the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus Christ. I love all the pictures. I did a study, and you know they say in, in a preaching boot camp, they said, don't preach your homework, man. But I looked at like 12 verses of bride and bride. It's beautiful and stunning. Start in Revelation 21. You won't, you won't regret it. Trust me. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And, and look at this. He is the, John says, he's the friend in verse 29. What does it mean by friend? It's like parallel it to the best man in, in a wedding today. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man of the bridegroom. And in Jewish times, you have to understand the context. In Jewish times, the best man was in charge of all the wedding arrangements. Wow, times change. And the wedding arrangements, but yet once the groom shows up, the best man's work was done. I got him there and everything's set. Everything's on him now. He's the main focus. Thus, instead of making himself known, John rejoiced. See that? He rejoiced greatly when Jesus Christ came and was stealing, quote unquote, his thunder. He rejoiced greatly because people came to know him and follow him and his joy was complete. That means filled the capacity. Why? Because the Savior had come and John had fulfilled his purpose. Joy complete. Your joy will never be complete if you're the focus, loved ones. If your purpose is to make you known, your joy will never be complete. John's joy is complete because the Savior is known and he's come. The word of God made flesh. Now think about this. Think about this. Look at, use a wedding analogy. I love this. Imagine, you know, I've done a number of weddings now. Praise the Lord. One of my favorite things to do. 
But one of my favorite parts of the wedding is this. When I stand up on the altar, I've got the groom over here, and there's his man over here. And it's that moment the bride's entering, coming down the aisle. And everyone stands and then turns to look at her. No offense, brides, but I've never done that for you. Here, here's what I do. I turn and look at your future husband to see his eyes that moment. He sees his bride. And I turn and I look, and his eyes just pop. And there's tears, and it's like, ah. There's my bride. But imagine this. If the best man over here sees the bride coming down, he's like, I want some glory. Steps in front of the groom. Says, hey guys, I made all the arrangements. How do you like the lights? How do you like this music? You know, I booked the band, you know. You know, I've had a piece in this wedding too. How do you like the outfits, the tuxes? Yeah, I ordered those. And that food you're going to chow down on in a little bit? Yeah, guess what? I, I organized the catering. That guy would get punted. <laughs> Boom. Oh, yeah, you get punted. What's he doing? He's stepping in front of the bridegroom. Hey, loved ones, are you stepping in front of the bridegroom? Jesus wants his bride to see him. Are you stepping in the way? because you want them to see you. Look at me, guys. I'll step in front of the bridegroom. Are we doing that? You want them to see you? See, John's purpose was to prepare people to meet the bridegroom. And our purpose today is the same. The bridegroom is coming back soon. He came one time and John was called to prepare. He's coming a second time and God's bride is called to prepare. He's coming back soon, but he's not here yet. And there are preparations to be made and his name is to be proclaimed and not our own. You and I, here's the thing. Here's the thing we have to realize where John says, I am not the Christ. We have to realize this. You and I are not the main attraction. You and I are not the Messiah. As much as we like to think we are, you and I are not the anointed ones. There is one king, there is one Lord, and he will not share his glory with another. Amen? You and I are not the main attraction. Our purpose is not to exalt ourselves. Love you. It is not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt the bridegroom. Why? Because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in other things for salvation, you're trusting in other things to save you, it cannot because there is only one name. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. The God-man, the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, the son of God, coming to earth, fully God, fully man. It is he who we proclaim. Going to a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Crucified, buried for three days, rising again, defeating sin and death for all time. That is the name above all names. Amen? It is not to declare Pastor Ray Kaprowski. It is not to declare you or you. It's to declare him. That's our purpose. The bridegroom's coming. So question, whose name do you proclaim? Who's increasing in your testimony? You or Jesus? Lastly is this. 
Three characteristics of what living in Christ-exalting humility looks like. Number one, humility recognizes a response to the truth that Jesus is sovereign. All I have is from him. Number two, Jesus is the Savior. My purpose is to make him known. Number three, Jesus is supreme, and he deserves all the glory. Jesus is supreme, and he deserves all the glory. Look at this. This sums up the Christian life in one pithy sentence right here. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's the Christian life. There's the purpose. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, John states that his time of ministry is now over, and it's time for Jesus to take center stage. To increase there, the Greek means to become greater in size, greater in authority. And for him to decrease, the Greek means they're the opposite. To make less in rank, to make less in influence, to make less in authority until, get this, until John disappears completely. That is what it means to finish faithfully. One of my favorite quotes, Nicholas Zinzendorf, cool name. He's a bishop in the Moravian church in Germany. He was, but he said this, and I pray it would bless you as it has rocked me this week so much. Preach the gospel. Here's our mission. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. There it is. Are you okay to be forgotten? Am I? You know, I was sitting there in family devotions one time this week and we were talking about we're going through the gospel of Luke as a family we're talking about when Jesus comes back and maybe one day dad and mom will die and how we disciple our kids through that and I asked one of my boys I said hey so how do you feel about that you know if dad's gone one day what what would you do and uh, he says well I'd miss you he says but I'd be okay because Jesus is there and at first, my reaction, you think I'd cheer. My reaction is like, what do you mean? I'm just dispensable? Come on, I'm your dad, man. But then the loving rebuke of the Holy Spirit says, you are decreasing and I am increasing. That's commendable. There's no competition only total commendation. So question, where must you decrease and where must Christ increase in your life? More of his desires, more of his plans, more of his purposes, more of his fame, and less of your desires, wants, plans, glory through your agenda, your marriage, your parenting, your serving in the church, your finances, your job, your entertainment. Because here's the truth, loved ones, we must understand. You and Jesus both can't increase in your life. One will increase, one will decrease. If you increase, he decreases. If he increases, you decreases. You both can't increase. So what is your choice today? It's one or the other. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can you willingly embrace, loved ones, Harvest Ottawa? Can we willingly embrace the descent into anonymity? 
Can you? See, because Jesus is exalted in my life when I am not living in competition with him. And I am living with increasing humility before him. And I'm going to leave us with this quote before communion here. This quote by F.B. Meyer. He just sums it up so beautifully. And I'm going to read it slowly. I would recommend you take a picture of it or download the slide off our website. It says this. And this humility was characteristic of John. He knew that he was not the light, but sent to bear witness of it. Not the bridegroom, but the bridegroom's friend. Not the shepherd, but the porter to open the door into the fold. This humility is as rare as it is fascinating. We are all so apt to use our relationship to Christ as a means of enhancing our own importance and attracting attention. Though we formally ascribe the supremacy to our Lord, we are elated when our name is on every lip and our work in every thought. Even though we should never have been heard of had it not been for him. O Lord, deliver me from the sin of usurping my glory in any way.